pep, pep, bla, 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 bla. Hello, and welcome to See One, Do One, Teach One, the podcast dedicated to becoming a better medical educator. With me, Pick Mukherjee. And Tom Pereira. This is the one where Tom gets it completely wrong. Right. Hello and welcome. Today we are going to talk about being wrong. We are going to talk about the right and the wrong way of being wrong. We have a guest today. Hi, I'm Akiva Dim, a PGY2. So I have been wrong so many times. One that stands out because I was uh, doubling down was uh, in conference in front of a large group. I said, yes, and this person had a upper extremity swelling. Uh, so if he's got an upper extremity DVT, that's much more likely to go to his lung than our average leg. And there was kind of some silence. And then one of the residents said, no. And I was like, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, legs uh, can sometimes go. But yeah, if it's in the arm, I mean, it's so close to the chest. It's just obvious that, and I've looked this up and I'm telling you. And he, and he said, I don't think that's right. And I went, no, it's right. And uh, he disagreed. And so I said, okay, well, I'm right, but we got to look it up. And we looked it up. And of course, I was very, very wrong. And it was exactly the opposite of what I had said. Uh, and it was the opposite of what I had been saying for a couple of years. And I was in attending, teaching lots of other people. So Akiva, fill us in on being a resident in a situation like that. First of all, what's it take to speak up in conference against your attending? Well, it's certainly challenging to speak up in conference against an attending who's supposed to always be right and the one who is always giving you the right answer. And it can definitely be hard, especially on shift as well, to challenge an attending and say, no, I think we need an extra test. But I think it's part of residency and part of our job to do that. Okay, so even better than that, how does it feel when you're right? It feels great. It feels very, very, very good. Uh, you want to run home and, and scream and dance. So one of the reasons why I have uh, Akiva here today is I was having trouble coming up with a good story uh, as to uh, my being wrong and how I dealt with that. And and reality is the reason I was having trouble with that was I'm wrong so often and I'm actually very comfortable with being wrong. But I recently had a case with Akiva where there was a swollen leg. I came out of the room. I said, you're crazy. This is not a DVT. Uh, he said, yeah, yeah, it's a DVT. I got the study, was a DVT. Uh, and it was one of those very positive sort of reaffirmation sort of things. And I was very comfortable coming back and saying, I am wrong, wrong, wrong. And you know how when you do a death notification, you say dead, dead, dead. Probably this is one of those times where it's worth saying wrong, wrong, wrong. And it wasn't a we disagree. Well, Tom came out of the room and said, you're totally wrong. There's no way this is a DVT. And I said, you're totally wrong. This is definitely a DVT. So I think it's great that both of you were so committed, right? Tom comes out, you're on a different planet, no chance. Uh, and, and you come out saying, oh, yeah, it's there, uh, which is great because because you committed as, as the resident to challenging your attending. But I think that a key element is that he would say, but this is above the test threshold. We are getting the test. Yeah, we both knew we were getting the test. That wasn't the thing. We were betting on the result. I, uh, everybody who's worked with me will know I am uh, very quick to bet a beer with whatever idea I think is correct because it is something I, I don't mind losing. And I think that it is one of those tools to get people to commit. I love the bet thing because if you win or lose a bet, you remember winning or losing that bet, and it kind of cements the what you were right or wrong about. I Also, you said something about like how it feels to be wrong and how great it feels to be right. 
And one of the things is uh, all the bad things about feeling to be wrong, like I you get like kind of sick and queasy and oh no, what did I do? That's what it feels like when you realize you were wrong. That When you're wrong, it feels exactly like being right. So Maybe even more so. When you're making the statement and fighting your battle and you happen to be wrong but you don't know it yet, it feels like confidence. When two people go all in and they each bet a million dollars, they each know with 100% certainty they have the best hand. And of course, one of them has to be wrong. Let's go back to the case that you said. Uh, you have an arm uh, uh, worse than a leg. You say it out loud. What is what is the right way for an attending, a leader, a role model to say, I am wrong? And then let's talk about some of the ways that you can do it very wrong. So I think one of the key things is the admission of wrongness uh, coming very matter-of-factly from the supervisor, from the attending, is super important. It normalizes being wrong. Uh, there's a guy named Kevin Fong who's got a book and, and, and lectures a bit, and he talks about how NASA had this uh, logo, this uh, slogan for Apollo 13, and it said, failure is not an option. And, and we've completely misunderstood NASA. Uh, when they said failure is not an option, they, they didn't say it because they can't afford to make an error. That's that whole physicians are perfect and we're afraid to make an errors thing. What they meant was that failure is an inevitability and you should expect that it is going to happen to you many, many, many times, and you should have a plan for when it happens. So I like that. And, th and that's what this podcast is for. It's for setting that plan. I think some of the things you said are really important. You need to admit it out loud. I like to go back and find evidence to show why I was wrong. So if there is some debatability on the topic, and I now know that I am wrong, I will pull the literature to say, this is why you were right and I was wrong to make it a very clear and yet still good learning message. And there's a lot of problems with the supervisor's sort of reaction to being wrong that might get in the way of that, right? Uh, we all kind of invent reasons why we weren't that wrong. And you, and you know, really in the back of my head, I'm not that surprised. If you, if you didn't commit to you're on a different planet, maybe some, uh, some of the attendings actually handle it uh, worse than others. Akiva? Well, I had a case recently where a patient came in, had some pain, I said to my attending, you know, I think this could be a PE, and I, I want to scan the fellow for a PE. And my attending looked at me and said, you're crazy, this is not a PE, you're wrong, but you're a resident, you're learning, you know, we can go with it. And of course, the case came back, and the patient ended up having a very large bilateral PE. And the way that he had responded at that time was, it doesn't matter, really, this guy, it's not clinically significant. And he didn't really acknowledge that he was wrong, and that the test was correct, and that it should have really been done. So... It was a very different response than the case that I had recently with, with you, Tom, where you acknowledge that you were wrong, but that you still wanted to do the test. So I think there, there are two ways to handle it, right? One is to say you're wrong, admit you're wrong, and look back at the case to figure out what pieces of the history, what pieces made you not go in the right, or made the attending not go in the right direction so that both of you can learn from the case. And that is a very different response than what you're describing, which essentially is denial and deflection, right? So it is, uh, oh my God, it's an act of heaven. Uh, this only happens because of lightning bolts uh, and I was standing in the wrong place. And we understand that probably that's not the best way to move forward. And since not every attending is going to offer the let's deconstruct the case and figure out if I could have gotten it right or if there was a warning sign or looking back, maybe this was I should have paid more attention to, then unfortunately it becomes the resident's job to ask. And I think as a resident, it's very important for us to know 
what could we have done better or picked up differently because we're, we're going to be in your shoes very soon. And if we don't know how to look back and figure out what you were thinking and why you thought it was not the right test order or why it was not the right diagnosis, we won't be able to do that later on when we uh, end up filling your shoes. And I, I do think the supervisors have a tough time with this a bit. I asked leaders with titles to tell us in conference about a time they were wrong. And what I got was three out of three examples of a terrible thing that had happened. And the message in all three cases was, uh, shit happens. The universe is a cruel place and you miss things and don't get too torn up about it. Instead of, no, I was, I missed this. Yeah. <laughs> we are definitely going to be wrong as clinicians. And one of the ways we deal with it is through backup system. I think you had a great Joe Lex story. Uh, Joe Lex, uh, who we all know is uh, uh, ex-Temple ED attending now, um, doing his jazz podcast probably. But uh, one of the Jolex aphorisms is something to the order of, I'm going to make thousands of decisions every day. I'm going to get some of them horrendously wrong, maybe 10, 20 times. Most of them are going to be caught and stopped before they ever get to the patient. And the few that get to the patient won't cause any harm to the patient. And if one gets through that causes harm to the patient, which is always a possibility, then we have to be alert for that. But it's essentially by the system and the grace of God that all the errors that I make aren't so clinically terrible. I think there are some good parts of that, and I think there are some bad parts of that. The good parts of it are that the medical system is aware enough of all of these errors that we make, that there is some built-in redundancy. I think when we think about testing uh, in the emergency department, we are always worried about the worst possible thing. So even though deep in our core we don't think this chest pain is cardiac, we are still doing the right test to make sure because we understand that it's still an odds game and they're still somewhat gambling. The downside of this is your Swiss cheese theory. A couple of downsides of this. One is just at, as ER docs, our risk meters are profoundly shifted away from reality. Although we should have a test threshold that is low for looking for terrible things, it could be that the pendulum has swung too far and we're doing too much testing. Uh, the Swiss cheese model I hate because what it says is once that like 20th error actually gets through uh, all the holes lined up, uh, that the response should be another layer of cheese. Uh, and uh, we are now We can never have enough cheese. Tom, we, we are suffocating. I'm Italian. There can never be enough cheese. You're an Italian, but we have buried you under a mountain of Limburger, the smelliest. And, and when something bad happens, you scream, please, the smell, we add more cheese. More cheese has more downstream problems. You're not, the, the effect is not to block errors. The effect is to block this specific error from happening in this specific way. And what it generates is 100 unintended consequences, which, you know, can cause errors. So we should just go back and do a... <laughs> The Swiss cheese model has to do with Swiss cheese has holes in it. Things slip through those holes. If you put another piece of Swiss cheese above it, there is a chance that those holes will line up, but it will block some more of the holes. And if you just keep layering the cheese uh, on there, eventually, hopefully, there aren't so many holes. Uh, but oddly enough, there always seems to be a hole that goes all the way through the cheese. If you tell me I have this problem and this error happened, I could probably come up with a way for this specific error to not have happened but you get a new class of residents every year and they will find new and innovative and inventive ways to mess things up that you've never thought of. So oh, I don't the think it takes model, interns. I think attendings can mess things up just beautifully. Attendings mess things up in specifically different ways, which is actually <laughs> super interesting. Well, with the Swiss cheese model, I think putting extra layers on is a bad idea. I think we can just go back and make the hole smaller. That would be ideal. 
right? The whole theory is it just passes through the holes. So instead of putting out extra layers, errors are going to happen. Like you said, it's inevitable. If we can just go back and find out what we did wrong and not put extra layers on. So that goes back to what we were saying before. That is, that is learning from our mistakes as best as we can, but not necessarily changing the world with every error. But the learning can only occur if we have that growth mindset of let's deconstruct the case and let me see where we could have gone wrong. And you know what? There are cases where you will try to do that and maybe not see where you could have done it differently or better. And, and that's important too, right? We do a lot of resulting where we think because X happened, uh, we should have done something differently. And, and that's not always the case. Not every successful case means you did it right. And not all, every case with a problem means you did it wrong. There are good ways to deal with error. There are some not so great ways. One of the not so great ways, I think, is denial, denial, denial. Uh, no matter how much evidence being put in front of attending, I have watched attendings continue down the pathway of I could not possibly be wrong. And I think that is difficult for everybody to deal with. Admitting you're wrong is kind of framing or modeling that it's okay to be wrong and normalizing it. So we said that that's good. And then uh, teaching on the case, not just that you were wrong, uh, but why you were wrong. Good. Thank you very much for being here, Akiva. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Tom, what's the paper of the day today? So the paper of today is in the Journal of Biomedical Informatics, Recovery at the Edge of Error, Debunking the Myth of the Infallible Expert by Vimla Patel. Is there a myth that there's an infallible expert? I like to perpetuate that myth, even though I know it's not true. So this paper was actually looking at uh, both attending physicians and trainees, uh, and they were trying to figure out uh, uh, if they made errors and what kinds of errors and how quickly they corrected their errors. And one thing that I thought was interesting, uh, and they have a nice little review about error, was that attending physicians, experts, tended to make errors of a particular kind, and they tended to be in the uh, realm of premature closure and anchoring. And I think it's partly that attendings and experts get the right answer quickly and fairly accurately so often that when they're wrong, they tend to fixate on, well, I do this a lot and I'm always right at this first shot. That's great. When we're wrong, we're really wrong. What I like about the paper is it spends a really nice introduction about error and error recovery. The main thing that that says is that it is impossible to remove medical error. Although we put all these systems together, it will, it will never be a system when we are actually infallible. Great, and I think we all agree on that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, no paper like this can be complete without the well-known and well-established Norman's model of interaction with error. Which I love the fact that we both read and went, what the heck is that? <laughs> so, so it is a seven-step, which really needs to be about three-step way to handle error, uh, it's all in figure one, so I'm happy I don't even have to read anything. There are pictures and everything. Uh, start with perception of the error. That's one. Uh, interpretation of the error. Like, hey, that's an error. That's two. And then evaluation that it is, in fact, an error. The binary, yes, no, it's an error. So that's three steps that basically are one step, which is, hey, there's an error. Can't believe you're happy about the figure. They have drawn some kind of PowerPoint clip art thing of a guy in a bed below the errors. I'm not sure why he's there. Neither am I, but it's cute. It's distracting. You're, you're round one where you uh, decide that there is an error and act on the error. That's important. All right. Uh, and well, that act on the error is, is number two. So as we continue down our seven steps, that first three that is really one, the next one is set your goals for response. Hey, there's an error. What do I want to do about it? Uh, and then you move on to decide to take action because often if there's an error, you may decide not to do any action. Step 
six is specify the corrective action. So once you've decided to make an action, what's that action going to be? And you know what step seven is? Do that action. So realistically, we're talking three steps. Decide that there's an error, figure out if you need to do anything about it, and then do something about it. Done. Great. And then what did they actually do in the study? They gave all of the physicians these cases. They tried to figure out, and they presented them different kinds of errors. They tried to figure out if the uh, physicians were picking up the errors uh, more quickly, and they tried to see if they actually acted, uh, made a corrective plan. So in this case, the experts picked up on a lot more of these errors. There were a bunch of cases presented where there were pretty clear errors in them, and the experts definitely picked up those errors more. And, and they also picked them up more quickly, meaning while they were hearing the details of the case, they pointed out a discrepancy in the beginning instead of waiting till the end to digest them. Great. And then how about the trainees? Well, the trainees actually uh, didn't detect as many errors as the experts, and then they tended to get through the entire case and then go back over the summary before figuring out that there was a discrepancy. But I thought it was super interesting that the experts corrected about 36% of their detected errors, while the residents corrected uh, twice as many, 66% of the errors. So I, I think this nicely points out that part of training is, while you're training, you accept the fact that there are going to be errors and that you're going to have to correct for them and that there is a comfort level that trainees have with correcting errors. Whereas when you're an expert, you are always right, and you know you're right, and it takes some internal arguing to figure out you should actually change course. Yeah, maybe the voices in the head are too loud. But I think that the nice take-home from this paper is everybody's going to make mistakes. We probably should correct them when we make mistakes and move on from that. And there's probably a bit in here that uh, this paper's not about uh, between the error evaluation and the goal for response. And that's a little bit of that growth mindset. What can we learn from this? What can I take to the next case? And there isn't always something. Uh, so the paper from 2011 in the Journal of Biomedical Informatics, Recovery at the Edge of Error, Debunking the Myth of the Infallible Expert, Vimla Patel. Thank you. Okay, I think it's time for Not a Thing. Tom, you look a little red. You look like your blood pressure might be up. You must have a Not a Thing today. I, I do have a That's Not a Thing today. But first of all, the, the, one of the That's Not a Thing would be that you can tell that my blood pressure is up. So, well, but we'll move past that. Today's... Well, well do you have a headache? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so today's That's Not a Thing has to do with, oh, your other doctor started you on antibiotics? Well, you should definitely finish those so that uh, we don't promote resistance, even though it turns out you don't have a strep. So the doctor who is promoting resistance by throwing the most popular antiviral known to man, the z pack and every patient who comes through the door, sometimes just as a preventive because, you know, it's flu season, that's the guy who we should, like, make sure everyone takes all their pills? I have definitely been in the emergency department where I have heard, oh, it's okay, finish the antibiotics that you started. So, Kiva, what do you think? I won't lie, I'm guilty of this as well. I, I recently yelled at my wife and said, why do you stop your antibiotics after three days? You have to finish it. And she said something like? I feel better. So why would I do it? Extra pills is bad for you in my, in my system. So just to get back, we have had this uh, thought implanted in everyone because we think what? We think that if you are partially treating a bacterial infection and you stop the antibiotics too soon, then you are uh, leaving behind a residual bugs who will then grow back. And now most of the bugs in the populace will be resistant. This is the theory. Don't partially kill the terrible pathogens. Make sure they are dead, right? Salt the earth. The difference here, though, is that the cases that I'm talking about are ones where we've now proven that there was no bacterial infection to begin with. And in those cases, 
probably because somewhere in our vestigial brain there is the idea that we should not change someone else's initial treatment. We say, oh, just finish up the antibiotics, even though it turns out you don't have the urinary tract infection. So this is the, uh, the last doctor is always the smartest and time changes. So my patient who got off the plane and got a fever and was started on doxycycline by the urgent care because they thought it might be pneumonia was then sent for an x-ray and there is no pneumonia. And so I told her, don't take those pills. You are killing good, healthy bacteria so that you can get, you know, C. diff. So your point of view is that if there was no bacteria to kill in the first place, randomly taking antibiotics for a shorter period is better than randomly taking antibiotics for a longer period. If you are not sick with a bacterial thing, then treating you for a bacterial thing can only possibly make you worse. And C. diff is the poster child for, it used to be you had to be in the hospital on crazy drugs to be at risk for C. diff. And now, man, everybody. Uh, because why? Because of the commonly antibacterial uh, antivirals. Great. So today's this is not a thing is uh, if it turns out not to be bacterial, yeah, stop the antibiotics. Stopping sooner leaves the healthy bacteria alone. And I think Akiva has to model being wrong and admit to his wife that he might have been wrong. I will consider it. So, Pick, what is your thing to try today? Uh, so I think the thing to try is something uh, that I guess we're doing every day, which is being wrong. But uh, we have to try, I have to try to notice when I'm wrong and call it out on myself uh, more uh, obviously and more often. Be wrong, right. So then the other side of that is to let the people you're working with, if they happen to be wrong today, know the right ways to deal with it. So making sure that you normalize some sort of incorrect thing, because there's always something said that's incorrect uh, in a shift. So whether you're wrong or they're wrong, you're kind of, again, taking it to that growth mindset. This is how you're wrong. This is how we're wrong. Great. That's something we're going to try today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Go out there and make better doctors. Get out there and make doctors better. Get around.